Bonjour, bonsoir, dear friends, and welcome to JCB Live. Tonight is a happy hour, and we're going to go forward into another world. We're going to go to Hong Kong with the fabulous Deborah Meinberg. Yes, you heard the famous, most awarded woman in the wine world is going to be with us. <laughs> She's been living for 30 years in fabulous Hong Kong, and she started her life Yes, it's true, as a CPA. She doesn't look like one at all. And she's done so well there, but then she found another path and discovered wine. And as Deborah is, she doesn't do anything halfway. She went full force into the world of wine, became the first Asian master of wine. Yes, the most famous degree in wine. She has it. She created her own business, which is flourishing throughout Asia. And she has TV programs, wine education programs. She writes books. She has a TV show. Well, what does Deborah doesn't do? You will discover she does it all. Deborah, welcome to JCB Live. <laughs> Bonjour. Hello, hello. <laughs> so happy to see you, Jean Charles. Well, and Deborah, you know, I'm very happy to see you because I'm in your hometown of the Russian <laughs> River in Sonoma, California right now. So cheers. Cheers to you. <laughs> so how does it feel, Deborah, to have been for the last nine months at home with your charming husband, Patrick, on both different <laughs> floors, sharing so much family meals? Actually, it's been uh, a great privilege because, you know, I love my work, but it did, has meant that I've been traveling 30, 35 trips a year for the last 12 years. Um, so it's been actually nice to have the chance to uh, reintroduce myself to my husband, tell him what I look like. And it uh, turns out I actually really like him. So it's been time well spent for us. <laughs> I'm glad you realize you really like him because he's very charming. <laughs> I get to know him many times and you make the perfect couple together. So. <laughs> <laughs> how many years has it been? Because we should have a toast to how many years of marriage? Oh, well, we got together in 95, but it took quite a few years to convince him to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa, I'm sure. So, <laughs> Deborah, tell us, a, an incredible lady born in the Russian River of California with the beautiful Chardonnays and Pinots are made to go to Asia. How did that happen? And give us a little bit of sense of history. Ah, well, I think it's really interesting to look at contingent history, like why are decisions made that take you down a completely different path than you expect. But oddly, I was an exchange student to El Salvador, El Salvador in Centro America uh, when I was 14. And that's how I ended up in Hong Kong because I fell in love with culture, with language, with travel, and continued that journey. And though I became a boring accountant, I always knew I was more, much, much more fun than that. Um, but I saw accounting as a very useful baseline of business and uh, would help me with other ventures. And ultimately, all those interests came together with the opportunity to live in Asia. I was headed to Japan and somebody, which is beautiful, and I still love it today, but 
uh, and I had studied Japanese, but somebody said, why don't you wait for your visa in Hong Kong? And that was it because Hong Kong is a fantastic city. It's the New York of Asia. And in Hong Kong, it's very difficult to go to a meal without having six cultures around the table. And for me, this, this was a dream. So you go to Hong Kong, you seduce, you don't go anymore to Tokyo, and you decide <laughs> to stay and you enter a professional firm as a CPA there? I, had, uh, I managed to get a position with Pricewaterhouse before arrival. Um, and stayed there for a couple of years. And then I became director. Uh, I got recruited to run an NGO, not surprisingly, Student Exchange Programs, AFS, which continued this interest in culture and learning. In my life, I found there's sort of a, a pyramid. You do take on one role, another role, another role, and those three somehow lead to something really creative and passionate and exciting to do. So in my case, these things led to my career in wine. That's absolutely amazing. And how did you discover you love wine to the point that you wanted to make it your life? Ah, such a good question because I, I grew up in Sonoma County and of course we have beautiful wineries. I was in the Russian River Valley at the point of Green Valley and Dry Creek, it's a great location <clears throat> right near Deloach. And, uh, but it didn't occur to me really to enter the wine industry. Um, and it wasn't until I was in Hong Kong that I started understanding all the opportunities in the industry. But my first three years here, I drank beer uh, because the only, the only wines here at the time were um, Bordeaux and Burgundy. And they were in stores that had buttons like a jewelry store. You had to be buzzed in like a secret club and they were scary to me. But one day I woke up and I said, I really miss wine. There's no California wine here. I have to learn about these wines. And I was hooked immediately. I mean, wine is so fascinating because it's, it's everything I love. History, culture, um, art, pleasure, eating, dining. And then as I continue my wine journey and, and study more and more, I feel the gift wine also gave me with a love of science. Until I studied wine, I wasn't that crazy about science. I loved language. Um, but wine makes science fascinating. Now, how a young lady decides from Salvador, El Salvador, to really go to <laughs> Hong Kong. And I know you have sisters as well. And your father would have said, Deborah, when are you coming back home? I mean, you are thousands <laughs> of miles away. How did you get that sense of being attracted to other cultures? Well, it's funny you mentioned about parents because um, I arrived in Hong Kong and three weeks later, I contacted my mom. You know, this is in the 80s. We didn't have opportunities to communicate like we do now. So phone call was three US dollars a minute. And I called my mother and said, I'm not coming home. And she's like, what? I said, I'm, I'm staying three years, mom. And I really had left home saying I'd be home in a year. Um, so for many, many years after, probably 15 years, I called her on the same day and said, mom, three more years, three more years. Of course, now it's been 32 years. It's really my home. And I've been so fortunate to live in such a dynamic place. And particularly uh, when the wine industry took off in Asia, uh, really we can base that primarily in 2008 
wine interest was creeping up in China and for sure Hong Kong. But in 2008, the Hong Kong government took this really bold move and removed all tax on wine. So suddenly wine was duty free. So, okay, that's a nice thing. But what the government wanted to do was build a strong, robust wine trading, fine wine market. And they couldn't just remove tax, they had to support it. So they supported it by starting a wine and dine festival, a wine fair, um, inviting all the auction houses out. They co-partnered with me on starting a wine competition. So there were so much going on in the wine world that my career took a path I never really could have imagined. For me, I just wanted to teach wine and kind of help the industry, but, but my role became much broader and much more exciting. Well, Deborah, it's very exciting though, but I'd love to know, and for you to explain to all our friends with us tonight, how do you follow your passion to that level? Because you were having a director's role in a very famous CPA firm, you know, <laughs> very well respected, you were having a great career, and suddenly you make the decision, I'm gonna go in this direction. How do you do that and what goes through the intellectual process to make such a shift? You know, I, I, I'm sure every single person in the wine industry has used the word passion. Um, and I was certainly just driven by curiosity. I wanted more, 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 learn, learn, learn. And the best way to learn, of course, is to teach. Uh, so that's really where I started with really engaging with wine. And this, the other great way is to write. But I think when it comes to making those choices, I would use the word blick. So when you're studying for the master of wine exam and possibly diploma students for WSET, memorize a trick called blick, balance, length, intensity, and complexity. And I think that's a, a very, uh, this is a measure we use to, to evaluate wine quality. Does it have balance? Does it have length? Does it have intensity? Does it have complexity? And I think that's an excellent measure for life and particularly for your career. All right, I'm gonna use that all along. Now I'm gonna think of Blake <laughs> for a blink of a moment. <laughs> well, thanks for the advice. So, but explain us, you know, that smooth transition to really going very heavy into wine studies because everybody who is with us tonight know how complex it is and difficult and unattainable is it to become a master of wine. So how did you decide just to go for the extreme? <laughs> and it was extreme. Uh, these days, one must have a diploma level WSCT qualification or something similar. When I joined the program, that was not a requirement. Uh, and so I actually was in over my head, to be honest. Um, so I had to do a lot of catching up with basic wine knowledge, but I loved it. And uh, uh, that is the most important journey I've taken in my life is, is pursuing the MW. Um, but in my case, it was all about curiosity and learning. I couldn't get enough of the knowledge. I wanted to know more and more and more. But I think the trick is to plunge in and start learning in a disciplined way. Because um, I, I guess for me, I could compare wine to golf. Uh, when I sit at a table with people talking about golf, because I'm not a golfer, I don't really find it that interesting. 
and I'm sure for many people, wine is the same. Uh, by the way, I can give you a few, few bluffing tips if you like um, how to sit for a wine dinner if you're not that interested. Um, but yeah, give us I some became, tips. We, we, we okay, I will. I will. So for me, um, it, it just became more and more engrossing. The more I knew, the more I wanted to understand and know until there was nothing left but the MW for me. And that MW program was unbelievable. It's the toughest thing I did. It's like a Mount Everest for me. You really have to have the stomach for failure and, and the willingness to fail and look foolish and keep going. It was the biggest test of my tenacity and, and stamina and, and passion. But uh, it was also this open door to meet all kinds of interesting people, including Gina, including Jean-Charles. I met through Thank the pursuit you. of this MW program. And, uh, you know, the industry, our industry is so kind. Uh, they're gourmands, they're bon vivant, they love what they do. And so as a student coming to, going to any winemaker, buyer, quality control, officer, anyone you can think of in this industry and state, I'm trying to learn. I'm studying for the MW. They take the time to help you. And that was a, just a huge gift. So you want some bluffing tips? Really? Yes. So okay. I, I want to, to have a toast to this because Deborah, you, you make it very simple and you make it very linear, but I know it's an agitated journey to go through the master of wine and from being a CPA to starting your own firm. So we want to hear more. So I want to, I, I want to raise my glass to this burgundy glass of sparkling wine that we've had many times together. Cheers to you. <laughs> Cheers. You should define it into, why don't you define this wine as in accounting terms? Let's throw a curve <laughs> there. Let's, let's use accounting terms to define this wine. All right, so um, first of all, uh, intensity of flavor is important because it comes as a cost. And so you want an asset on your balance sheet that you can actually smell the wine and it's of good value. <laughs> I like that. And like the acidity like, might be ooh. just a little bit of a, a cut against the balance sheet so you have an asset but in a balance sheet in accounting terms you will also either have a, a liability perhaps so something offsetting this beautiful fruit uh, so you've got the fruit as an asset and the acidity offsetting the fruit <laughs> and then we've got this beautiful uh, plush um, very uh, gentle um, prickliness in the palate and for that we might say that's the equity of the wine that's the ownership of the wine <laughs> so balance sheet would be balance in the wine the fruit is your asset liabilities are the items that offset against the fruit which in this case would be the beautiful uh, fresh acidity and then our equity will be that mouthfeel and balance and um, the pearls Ooh la la, we are in budget season. I'm going to use that with our CPAs. I think it's going to be perfect <laughs> to get extra expenditures allowed. <laughs> Very well said, thank you. So Deborah, I asked you another question. So I'd love for 
for you to address it because it's the fascinating questions about you. So that was really how did you transition from CPA to master of wine in a sense that you know, you decided to make this very big evolution in your life and change career. And how do you change career from one very structured life to a more, you know, creative, audacious and very different life? That's a really good question, Jean-Charles. And uh, I have a bit of a creative streak, but finding that balance is, is tricky. And I think perhaps I have a high tolerance for risk. I think I got that from my father. He used to race motorcycles and boats and cars when I was a child. Um, so I grew up a bit fearless, for example, uh, for filming for the wine show, I rappelled into wine cellars into, in Champagne. I zipped wine across the river in Mendoza, uh, helicopters over you know, South Africa and these things, I'm fearless. But it does take a bit of strength to start your own business because it is high risk. So I think for people that are not risk tolerant, it's not ideal. And the other thing you have to love working because as you well know, Jean-Charles, because you're, to me, you're one of the hardest working people in the industry. You make it look fun, but you work really, really hard. Um, I think you have to love what you do in order to keep giving it that extra. And to have your own business, you have to be uh, excited about learning many different things. Because when I started, I didn't expect to be involved in production. I didn't anticipate social media yet. Um, I had to learn about being a PR agency. I had to learn about event management. I had to learn about so many different sectors. Um, and not to mention just keeping an office physically running and HR and marketing and branding and um, which has all been fascinating. But I think when you run your own business, you have to be comfortable with never fully knowing what you're doing and just plugging on the best you can and keep learning, learning, learning. But it has been amazing. And uh, I feel, you know, people that have shaped me have been my team because people, yeah. I have people that have worked with me over 12 years and and they like doing certain things. I never wanted to be in PR, bar, marketing, or branding, that element of our business, the agency. But my team wanted to do it. So suddenly, okay, let's go for it. <laughs> and um, so uh, I think also surrounding yourself with motivated, fun, creative, funny people is really important. And, and so tell us about your, your business today. And how has it been for you to really address with so much success what's happening overall in Asia? Because as I yeah. drink a little Chardonnay, I qualify you as Miss Asia. You've been so incredible as advising so many wonderful firms into entering Asia, building a business in Asia, building brands. You know everything about it. So I cannot wait to hear more. Well, I'm glad you suggested the drink as we talk about 2020, because it has been a tough year. <laughs> mm. Thank you. That's lovely and speaks of home. Well, um, I had a team of 22. Uh, now the team is greatly diminished, but we're all sort of on 
unpaid leave, furloughed, part-time. So we're, we've kept the team together, but not in the you know, robust way we did because um, starting last year, Hong Kong was embattled by protests, uh, mainly students protesting some of the national security laws and measures that were being implemented by mainland China. And I think for some of us, we knew this, this slow handover is inevitable, but it's, it's a tough time for people in Hong Kong. I think they feel a little lost um, as to their role yeah. in this enormous country. So we had six months of protests where my company had to cancel so many events. We have a Women of Wine Festival we had to cancel, for example. And then of course, COVID for us hit at the end of January. So we've been in various forms of lockdown since yeah. January. We've, we've managed beautifully. We have one of the lowest rates in the world. Um, and we are all really heeded the advice of wearing masks immediately. We take every precaution. We've been really well behaved as you'd expect of Hong Kong, but it has worked for us. But the business, wow. So my business, normally we have 200 to 300 events a year. We organize conferences, festivals, symposiums, uh, seminars, masterclasses. We work in 18 markets in Asia. So Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, of course, China and Taiwan, Macau, Hong Kong, Vietnam, Thailand. We run events Amazing. in all these markets every year. And mostly we represent wine regions. And I prefer to support the whole industry. This is what motivates me personally. So we work with countries like Georgia, which has been an incredible experience for me. Austria, we work with Napoli Valley Vintners, um, some time with Sonoma County Vintners, with Washington, with Oregon, uh, with Grave, um, with uh, not, about 18 different different places in the world uh, ask us to help build their market. And part of that is usually arranging roadshows for all the winemakers that come out to the market. So you can imagine that's all stopped at the moment. So we've spent most of our year really reflecting and trying to figure out how can we continue to help these regions and countries be yes. engaged with people in their markets in spite of it all. So we've had a lot of fun. And I mentioned earlier that whole idea of curiosity and uh, low uh, tolerance for risk. So the ability to kind of rethink how we run our business has been incredible. It's a bit well, painful at times. <laughs> well, congratulations. And I'm sure, as always, you will come out a major winner out of this. And uh, you will know how to reformulate everything. So on that note, Deborah, tell us maybe a little bit about where you see the trend overall in Asia, in wine and fine wine. And as well, in addition to that, and maybe it's two questions in one, as a great leader you are and an inspiration as a woman, we've been knowing each other for many, many years and <laughs> becoming this insane, phenomenal, inspirational lady in the world of wine, which I knew you would, and I had no doubt, and here you are. So can you please address those two? Okay. Um, so the markets, uh, one of the things we do is market research. So we've been trying to keep an eye on what's happening. 
so one of the biggest changes in our market is drinking at home. So in the States, of course, it's very common and normal to open a bottle of wine and start cooking. But in a place like Hong Kong and much of China, people eat out five days a week. And so uh, drinking takes place mostly in restaurants, yeah. what we call on-trade environments. So one of the biggest shifts has been this idea of drinking at home. And I have a theory that I've not researched that because so many of us have been working from home all this time, we've lost that transition moment we normally have in a commute home. So normally when you work, you have that maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, even an hour in some cases, time to wind down from work and walk in the door. But so many people are working from home and many are homeschooling at the same time. So what I'm realizing right now is a lot of my friends, they're opening bottles at four because uh, they, they want to make that transition to, oh, my work for the day is over. And I think that's going to have long-term consequences um, because Hong Kong, before in all our research, about 14% of Hong Kong ever drank home. And that was like once a week. And now we're seeing a much higher growth in that home drinking market. So I think that's very useful because that will allow people to stop relying on just the conservative high visibility labels and allow people to experiment with flavors and countries and styles mm -hmm. uh, privately. Because people in Asia uh, sometimes lack the confidence to serve something weird and wacky like Georgia wine. Um, they're a little afraid because they don't know how people will react to it. Uh, so now this is giving them confidence. And JC, one of the things I noticed in all the chat groups, I'm not, haven't done any research, but I noticed a lot more talk about Napa Valley, which was also really exciting. Um, I don't know what's driving the trend, but it seems like I'm seeing much more chatter about people drinking wines from Napa suddenly. And I think the, the sector that's probably the hardest to hit are the bubbles because here uh, sparkling wine is primarily seen as a celebration drink, an occasion. It's a drink for an occasion. And those occasions have been diminished and yet people aren't necessarily opening bubbles at home. So I think the sparkling wine industry is suffering a little. So I've been trying to run some seminars um, uh, encouraging people to drink sparkling wine with their first dishes. Because you know where we live, a first dish might be jellyfish with, with sesame oil, or it might be cucumber with a bit of salt and sesame seeds, or um, it might be cold uh, prawns. And of course, bubbles goes beautifully with all those dishes. Very true. Well, very well said. So great trends in many ways. And do you see within those trends, wine consumption growing consequently as people are enjoying it at home and feeling more comfortable with wine? Well, it's a super interesting question because how do you know? So I've, um, uh, we created a report for the Hong Kong government on the state of the Hong Kong industry. And it was really interesting because importers that sell to restaurants and bars are suffering. Importers that sell to private citizens are doing quite well for the home drinking market. But um, uh, what also has been happening is a lot of Hong Kong people had wine at home. So they're drinking their cellars and they're opening 
odd bottles that they weren't sure they were good enough to bring to a party. So I think once this is over, there's also going to be a lot of interest in collecting again. So, you know, like your portfolio, JC, is a collector's portfolio. So I suspect the collectors are going to want to stock up the sellers once again. Well, we hope so. We've had so many great of our Burgundies and Russian River at your house in this marvelous dinner you uh, kindly offered for that great auction you did, if you remember. That, that was, was fun. a miracle dinner. Oh, that's so kind of you. And it, it was you. You had wonderful friends and guests with you. I really well, had a wonderful time. A memory. And so now, Deborah, the second part of my question was about women. And oh, you, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you did say that. Women, with a few other well, friends of ours in Asia, and you've really so much successfully built this fabulous image as a comfortable, powerful, successful woman enjoying wine. And so many have followed you and so many more women enjoy wine. So tell us about that in, in Asia and what's happening in, in, within that trend. Well, somebody once asked me, how is it with the good old boys? And I said, I don't know that those boys are very good. But, <laughs> but, but um, in Asia, I, I think I've been very lucky and partly because I was completely oblivious. Um, in some markets, it's a bit, uh, the industry is a bit more male dominant, but in my market, uh, I haven't noticed. And perhaps we were lucky that a number of women early on began being strong in the industry. So I guess I would say for women, my first advice is just be oblivious. Just don't even notice if it's male on, owner only. Um, and, you know, to be honest, uh, I did an event once at the Hong Kong Club, which is a very prestigious club. And there were 32 attendees. And I was the speaker and I sat down for dinner with them. And my host said, oh, thank God this worked out. And I thought, oh, you didn't think I could speak? You know, what was it? And he said, we weren't sure a woman could get along with all these men. And I honestly looked up and said, oh, gosh, you're right. It's all men, isn't it? And the second, so I laughed at myself. I don't even see it. And the second thing that made me laugh is they actually had discussed it. So my conclusion is sometimes the men are more afraid of us uh, than we are of them. So be oblivious would be my first advice. <laughs> and then... Um, other advice, be tenacious. I never give up, never, ever give up. But, but I, I'm also non-confrontational. So I just keep trying in different ways, keep asking, find a new way to make something happen that I actually want to achieve. So be tenacious. And I think women are actually quite good at that. Um, and then uh, be interesting. Uh, and be interested. We all know we need to be interested in others, but also come to the table with a story of your own. Be okay. sure you have something fun and vibrant and particularly related to wine to share at the table. Um, also, ladies, I don't know if I can say this, but be good with your tongue, but not in the ah. way you're thinking. Just be sure to use your hey, tongue. Are you talking to a Frenchman here? <laughs> Be sure to speak first when you're in meetings because, wow, we all wait for everyone to speak. And then by the time we're ready to speak, all we can say is, I agree, I agree, good idea. So 
you know, don't be afraid to put yourself out. And one thing I've noticed, I put my ideas out at the beginning and then people kind of take them as their own and they forget it's their idea, my idea. So don't be afraid to state your idea a few minutes later again, like I said, uh, because sometimes people accidentally take ownership of your ideas. Um, and then I mentioned earlier, take risks. Um, I took a huge risk starting a TV show years ago. I was the person that if you put, ask me to stand in front of a video camera and say happy birthday to someone, I'm not making this up. One time I literally dropped to the floor and crawled behind a sofa to avoid a camera. I was so scared. So it was a big leap for me. Don't be afraid ever to take risks. We we produced videos for taxis, the, the screens in the back seats of taxis, uh, which was a huge risk and strange thing to do. But we ended up in China, 38 million views a month because we took a I took a risk. So don't be afraid to do crazy things that can work miracles for you. Um, always say yes. Uh, always say yes to anything and figure out how to do it later. Uh, but also don't forget to say no. I'm not good at saying no, but you do have to protect yourself, your physical fitness and your time. Um, don't be afraid to be a woman. Um, I love that some, one time someone came up to me and said, you know what I like about you, Deborah? You're just not afraid to hire women who are younger and prettier than you are. I went, oh, wow, yeah, glad. <laughs> younger may be prettier, I'm not sure about uh, that. Well, I, I was happy they even considered me in the reading, but, but, but the thing is, don't, you know, support, support, support. Uh, I mean, my team, I have to say, was 21 women and one beloved guy um but you know how did he get help. so lucky <laughs> we call him the godfather and uh, but you know really try to help others uh you know people help me jancis helped me um uh many many people in the industry help me and you please help others have the courage to pursue their dreams well talking about dreams i was um, so impressed in Hong Kong three years ago. You so kindly invited me to speak at your ladies' convention. Do you remember there was eight oh, yes. Yes. wonderful ladies in one room? So I was first in heaven uh, because, <laughs> you know, 160 eyes looking at me from the feminine perspective. But more importantly, you inspired them. You got them, you know, feel, as you said, confident. And I was very impressed by their talent, wine tasting. Would you be agreeing to me that women taste better than men as far as wine is concerned? <laughs> Have that extra sense in terms of wine tasting? I, I think every study has shown actually our physical tasting and smelling abilities are the same. But I think women have one slight advantage in general, and I'm being a bit, I'm making assumptions that are a little bit sexist, but in general, women have grown up with mothers saying, ooh, smell is perfume. We walk into a store, we're handed perfume samples. Many women have grown up around mothers who cook and therefore are smelling herbs in the kitchen. I think this is all changing, but I think 
the advantage women have is we're more familiar with things that smell beautiful. And the men are typically a little more familiar with, uh, you know, sweaty gym socks, moldy clothes, maybe if they played a lot of sports, you know, grass on the pitch, concrete, petrol, diesel. I am exaggerating, but I think that is probably some of the differences we see. Um, and, but I think everyone has the same capability. They're, all testing has shown we're absolutely the same. There's only one small difference. When women are pregnant, their senses are heightened universally, including smell. They just pay a little more attention to what they're smelling. Ooh, what a great balance explanation, you know. <laughs> this is where I recognize the fabulous accountant in here. You've managed both sides. This is how you became the most woman, influential woman in Asia. I can oh, see no, why very you kind of you. <laughs> this wonderful nomination. Now, Deborah, tell us how you become an advisor to a major airline and how ah. you succeed into that because... I'm going to serve the Napa Valley Cabernet as we transition from your home, the Russian River, mm -hmm. and the organic and biodynamic of the Loach, because this is a very big deal. You are the advisor to one of the most incredible airlines in Asia. Tell us about how that came about and what does that entitle? Well, I think... All of us in Hong Kong are huge fans of our airline, Cathay Pacific. We, we win award after award for our, our uh, service, Cathay Pacific, as well as the wine portfolio. Um, and it's, it's been an incredible experience to be a wine advisor to two airlines, actually. They're, they're somewhat related, but they are two separate entities. And, um, and a little scary because passengers, particularly first class and business class passengers are frequent travelers. They have high expectations and they speak out. So part of the challenge is to uh, second guess what tastes best in the air. So we've done lots of experiments where we measured barometric pressure, um, we marry, marry, uh, measure the dryness in the cabin, uh, different glassware, and I've, I've tasted wines in lounge before flight, on the plane before takeoff, after takeoff, after landing in Japan, in the lounge and reverse back, literally in one day, starting at 6 a.m. to 11 p.m., just to understand what takes place with these wines in the air. And one of the key factors is the dryness in the air. And, and so the wines we select, while sometimes we might really prefer something else, we need to go for a more robust flavor for the air because when you're in the air, the flavors diminish. But some of the challenges I hadn't considered until I started uh, selecting wines for Cathay is if it's a big airline and although Cathay might seem fly, uh, small, you know, planes were taking off here every three minutes. So it's a huge, huge, huge purchasing budget and huge decisions to make. But there's only so many times we can rotate a portfolio of wines, a list of wines on board, which means we need to work primarily with wineries that have uh, substantial production and are willing to give us a substantial percentage. So for example, 
We've had uh, Krug champagne on board um, for a decade. And uh, Maggie Enriquez, the head, she said, Deborah, I can't give you any more Krug. You know, stop expanding flights because I need to protect some of my portfolio for the rest of the world. So these are the things I hadn't thought about. You need a certain volume and a certain price. And then everyone in Asia wants a French wine on board, fine. But then everyone wants a wine on board to the country they're going to. Yeah. So it meant that our wine selections are more or less limited to countries plane flights too. So what we did to compensate for this idea of how can we get some boutique wines on board or how can we get some interesting countries on board even though we don't fly there, we now have discovery selections where we put six wines together and not us in addition to the basic selection already on board um, and passengers, uh, one of the six will be available for them to try and experiment. So it's been fun putting these programs in place and I've learned a lot about airline logistics. Wow. And airline and customer expectations. We used to taste everything blind and go straight for flavor. And then we realized passengers actually care about labels. Oh. And one time blind, we told the label, I won't name it here, but the name of the label sort of sounded like the end of life. So we had to pull that one immediately. So you also have to think, you know, is it good luck, bad luck, the label that you're selecting? <laughs> well, fascinating. Thank you for sharing. There's so many things I did not even know. Do you think the Oakville from Raymond, besides the fact that it's only 300 case production, do you think it would qualify for the airlines? Well, this would qualify for that very special discovery success because the production is too precious and I know you're on allocation, so there's no way we'd ever get this, but, but the flavors are perfect. And I'm particularly fond of Raymond because Jean-Charles, even though I'm from Sonoma County, people in Sonoma County, where I went to high school, we played Katari, we played sports against Napa. So in many ways, especially being this far away, Sonoma and Napa are one to me. You know, these are my homes. And I was so impressed what you did with Raymond. You took a, honestly, a kind of dusty overlooked winery and turned it into something outrageous and chic and exciting and um, completely different from the rest of the wine industry. I think you really pushed uh, the boundaries and pulled in, you know, a young crowd, excited crowd with your crazy leopard skin coats and purple velvet oh. and sw swinging mannequins. And, but I, I love, you made this wine hip, trendy and fun, but at the same time, you really stepped up the quality. I, I really congratulate you on this. Oh, sincere, I mean it, I mean it. Well, hey, you know, I'm gonna take that clip and put it all around the world. It's so well said, so articulate and so kind of you, thank you. Well, talking about Articulate, Deborah, tell us a little bit about your phenomenal TV shows and documentaries because oh. it's been an enormous success and I want everybody to be able to go on it and to watch you on <laughs> the screen that you escaped the camera, but you're so good at it now. <laughs> well, I have to say it's embarrassing to admit, but filming in Europe for seven weeks was the best road trip I've had in my life. 
and don't tell my husband because we did honeymoon in Europe, but I think you have I a house had in France. so much fun. I had, yes, we do. We're a house in France that we're isolated from. But the filming, filming, you know, on the road uh, was just a blast. So we filmed in 13 countries, including South Africa, Argentina, and um, a program called Taste the Wine, which was so much fun. But also have done many, many other um, productions, documentaries on wine regions, and wine tips, short videos I mentioned in taxis or played outside. Uh, elevators or lifts as we call them here and in, and in express trains and different things but I think uh, fundamentally underlining all of it other than the adventure sport that we kept embedding um, which by the way one of my favorites was water skiing on the Dordo River <laughs> drinking a glass of port now I'm sure this broke every law in the world but wow was it fun to get up on a water ski holding a full glass of wine that's <gasps> impressive uh, it was it was one of my proudest moments and I managed to even ski on one leg uh, with a sort of ballet expression of it before I crashed. I want to but, see that beautiful um, <laughs> <laughs> But I think what I treasure most um, about uh, these experiences was that when we filmed, we spent quite a bit of time in the winery in a way I never would have before. And so I got to know both the winemakers and the property and the sellers intimately, but also in my heart of heart, everything I love to do is teaching. And, um, and so for me, this was the biggest opportunity in the world to teach and explain things like tannins and acid and sweetness and how do you detect alcohol levels and these things I feel strengthen our entire wine world. This is phenomenal. And and we will indicate to everyone, obviously, after our wonderful time together, where they can see the show and obviously oh. dial in because they got to see you. And <laughs> what I love, I, I love is besides your charm and your beauty and your entertainment style, we learn a great deal. And I think that's what it's all about is to continue to pursue learning. On that note, I just heard. On that now, should I? I give you some bluffing tips? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> that I need to have too. But I just heard you published a book. Just oh, I just completed. Yeah, I just completed a book on Georgian wine. And uh, uh, I would like to mention Georgia just because it's a fascinating country. And it's a country that none of us have heard about until recently. Because Georgia was the sort of wine supplier to the Soviet Union. And so their markets were always, you know, in a part of the world that most of us don't see. And, um, but they are the oldest wine producing country in the world. It's been documented in many different ways, including UNESCO, that they have an 8,000 year history. And wow. this country has been very fascinating to me to understand they make traditionally their wine in the ground in Amphorae clay containers called Quevery. So it's been a lot of fun and working with them. I was, I did not want to work with them originally because um, I said, oh, it's the schlocky country's wines. I've never heard of them. But in fact, I've had a, a really rejuvenating wine experience. And um, what it reminded me is, although much of wine is about luxury, 
wine is really about culture and history and and yes. knowing a place through their wines. And I think that was a gift that Georgia gave back to me again. It kind of revitalized that sentiment around wine. Well, I cannot wait to put my hands on this book and learn about the 8,000 <laughs> years of history of Georgia. Amazing number of vintages. <laughs> yeah, so Deborah, your charming husband, Patrick, was running Pepsi Cola in the Southeast oh, Asia. Excuse me, Coca Cola, darling. I did that on purpose. I just wanted to make <laughs> the other sure guys. <laughs> so, how do you convert a Coca Cola boy to love the finest wine in the world? Because I was in your house and I perused your cellar. <laughs> and how did you turn him into becoming such a wine lover? Well, to be honest, he loved wine when I met him, which is partly why I loved him. Ah. And we do have, and we do have quite a bit of Boisé in the cellar. Thank you. And um, when I met him, he had a brilliant Burgundy collection because he used to work prior to Coca Cola with Eastman Kodak, and they had a factory in Burgundy area. So he had a brilliant Burgundy collection, but we blew through that the first few years. <laughs> so but he continues to add I think it's a real pleasure for him to to share wines with people I think what I love about my husband is he he doesn't save wine for a special occasion and often he'll pour me a glass of something very special on a Monday night and not tell me what it is until later I say well that was really good what was it and then I realized what I was actually drinking so I I love his unassuming style around the wine well, I, and I, I, would have to, I would have to agree, having been casually with you too, and seeing those growing <laughs> through oh, unbelievable Napa Valley wines, the Sonoma <laughs> being open, casually is the greatest thing. Whatever you serve <laughs> as food, although he's a great chef, being able to do that is, is fantastic. And I advise everybody to do the same. Absolutely. So on, on that note, a few more seconds with us, Deborah. You've achieved so much as an entrepreneur, as a woman, recognized as such, as one of the most amazing women oh, in the world of wine, in business, <laughs> an entrepreneur. I mean, and you've done so much. What is your next dream? Aha. Aha. Uh, that's such as, a tough question. As she question. her beautiful blonde hair <laughs> today. Sorry. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, at the moment, uh, I use COVID because, of course, I work slowed down to work on my French grammar. Um, I, I love language. I so wish I could reach fluency. So at the moment, I've been watching Chinese and Korean drama with French subtitle to practice. Um, but my you have dream... To talk about something simple. That's a great dream. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> But uh, for me, I really love this industry. And what motivates me is helping people succeed in this industry. As you know, I'm head of education for the Institute of Masters of Wine. That's right. I think my dream is really just uh, to deliver the same experiences and benefits and joy I've had by being in this industry and working with this beverage. Well, that's so well said. And Deborah, now the ultimate moment, 
everybody wants to hear about your ultimate message. What would you give us as a message to all of us, male, female, entrepreneurs from Asia, from the rest around the world? What would be your, your last message you want to send to all of us? Okay. Uh, first, one quick bluffing tip will be yeah. my message. <laughs> All wines should smell like fruit. So if you end up at a party and you have nothing to say to Jean-Charles, just lift up the glass. Wow. Unbelievable fruit. Amazing fruit. Hey, everyone, check out that gorgeous fruit. You will make him very happy. And when it comes to red wines, you can divide the red wine world into two. So tip a glass over your watch or wiggle your fingers and see if you can see through the glass. If you cannot see through the glass, you have a lighter bodied wine and you can describe that wine as though it were made of red fruit. And there aren't many red fruits, so raspberry, strawberry, cherry. So you just bring the glass up. Wow, Jean-Charles, this boisset. Amazing raspberry, strawberry, cherry. And then because we're faking it, and women are always particularly good at faking it, go oh. back to the glass and say, but mm, what kind of cherry? Is that Bing cherry? Ah, oh, or cherry from Shandong province, China. Just make it up, okay? And when it comes to I'm these lighter more. body ones, <laughs> the lighter bodied wines, Describe them as though perhaps they're women. So then in that case, as Sean Charles would describe women. So take a sip. Wow, silky, elegant, pretty, delightful, beautiful, sexy wine. And if it's a darker wine, like the Raymond, and you look at your watch, you cannot see through, then you describe it as though it were made from purple skinned fruits. And in that case, Blackberry, black cherry, blueberry, plum, I love because it can be many different flavors. And then for your final bluff, take a sip and describe it, describe it like a man. Ooh. So you, so you might female say female and men. I did. So then in this case, you might say, wow, really powerful, muscular, robust. And if all else fails, what a sexy wine. <laughs> so there's those are my tips. And in terms of last well, I minute, love your tips. Uh, I'm going I'm to plagiarize you as early as later today. <laughs> and in that terms was brilliant. Of tips, Thank you. I think uh, career tips, don't be afraid. Be a risk taker. Just do it. Don't hesitate. Always, yeah, I can do that. Yes, I'll try. And never, ever, ever forget to be curious. Be a lifelong learner. I love it. Deborah, I want to hug you. I want to hold you. I want to kiss you on both cheeks, forehead, nose. <laughs> and you know, you asked to everybody to know how to use their tongues. So hopefully I could prove that to you one day without Patrick knowing. But to you, to your charming husband, Patrick, I really want to raise my glass to your not only incredible success, but how humble, inspirational, phenomenal you are. We've been knowing each other for decades now. 
Yes, and yes. Always that vibrant, charming, and phenomenal, charismatic, eloquent, and of course, inspirational lady. And I'm so grateful Aww. to count you as my friends. And thank you. Me too. And I want to tell you that I'm so proud of all what you do pre COVID, during COVID, and post COVID, and for the great inspiration that you are to all of us, male or female. And I want to raise to an amazing year and to further success. And hopefully we can hug and see each other very soon. Likewise. Thank you so much, Charles. And thank you for being with us. <laughs>